Listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, have I got a deal for you. If you follow the social media of the show, you know that I'm a pretty hairy dude, which is why I was really excited when Manscaped reached out and offered to send us some free goodies to see if we wanted to promote it to you all. I've got to say, right now, this is probably one of the best products I have ever bought for myself. Not only is it waterproof, but it also makes sure that you don't get any nicks or things in areas that you probably don't want guts, to be frank. That's why I'm so happy to say that support for the Mad Scientist podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate in men's hygiene bundles. Join over 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with its exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MADSCIENCE. That's M-A-D-S-C-I-E-N-C-E at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 12 million balls. What a great time. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MADSCIENCE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code MADSCIENCE. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. It's pramming, people. It's pramming time. Pramming time. It's pramming the dark time. pramming times. Okay. Dear listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, Last episode, we talked about how evil capitalism is. <laughs> Again. Which is really, yeah, not a not an uncommon thing for us. But we got to the point where essentially we talked about how this sort of laissez-faire economic principle and the 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 landlords of Ireland who weren't around helped mm-hmm. kind of create this horrible system. But this happened because of structural and historical things that had really built up this sort of landowning class and almost an extractive economy and politics between Ireland and the greater United Kingdom headed by the British monarchy and uh, England in particular, because Scotland kind of didn't have a whole lot of Scotland and Wales didn't really have a whole lot of control over their own stuff either. This episode, we're going to go into kind of those earlier cases. So what caused the famine? What caused the backdrop to the famine? Mm -hmm. How did Ireland end up in the dire straits it was in before the famine? And then how does the famine start? What really kicks things off? So just like I like to say for intervention on A&E, when they get up to the pre-intervention, I always yell to my wife, it's pre-intervention. We're pre-famine. We're pramming people. Jake, roll the tape, please. <laughs> pramming. Yeah, pramming. Pramming time. Pramming. So from 1700 to 1775, Irish exports increased in value almost five times with cattle and their products among these tripling in their worth. Hemp, flax, and linen multiplied almost 30 times in value until they accounted for 52% of the earnings of all Irish exports. So things at that point looking pretty good. Ireland is looking like a robust economy coming into 
the mercantilism and the kind of mercantile trade that you expect from a part of the English colonial giant monster. Yeah, well, they're definitely holding their own. And these are also things that are bespoke value, especially with the linen products. These are things that the Irish really excelled at Mm -hmm. at this time. Mm -hmm. And it was in high demand in Britain and other and other countries. Mm. But then in 1798, inspired by American and France with their revolution, Ireland's resentment erupted into a major rebellion against British rule. So the British were taking all of his stuff and they finally had had enough. The insurrection was launched by the United Irishmen, a group whose goal was aimed at overthrowing Ireland's servitude to England for home rule. And so the British soldiers vastly outnumbered the United Irishmen. They also fought with guns, while the main weapon of the rebels was a long stick with a metal top called the pike. So again, imagine you are mostly still rural farmers. You don't have muskets. You don't have weapons. All you have are kind of these quasi javelin like weapons and not not great, (laughs) not great for long range fighting. So while the pike was really useful against cavalry attacks, it was really bad against regular armed British soldiers. And so that rebellion of 1798 is quickly suppressed. So St. Patrick's Day has the popular saying that goes with it, which is Aaron Go Bra. And people normally associate it with Patrick, you know, St. Patrick's Day. But really what it means, um, loosely translated, is Ireland forever. So again, that kind of ties back into the idea of home rule. So Ireland as a as a singular country and without, you know, without British rule um, forever. Yeah, Ireland free, Ireland on its own. Yep. Absolutely. So we have these areas of Ireland that are mostly untouched, though, right? So areas like Cork, for example, they're not really hit by the rebellion, but there is the group, again, the United Irishmen. They're active in the city for a long time before even the outbreak of this rebellion. And so the English military authorities take severe action. Mm -hmm. They go looking for members of the United Irishmen, and again, these are people just sort of fighting for, you know, self-rule and self-determination, all the stuff that, again, America was founded on, all the stuff that caused the French Revolution, right? This idea of the people should be the source of government power, not just being born in the right castle at the right time. And so these members of the of the United Irishmen, they are transported out of the cities, shot by firing squads in a field on the western edge of Cork City. So resentment just kind of, you know, this is centuries of resentment. Every couple of years, there's another rebellion. There's another, you know, strong-armed response by the English government. And you can just imagine, like, everywhere you look around these places are reminders of just how shitty the English government has been to your people. Yeah. And to have that happen in Cork. So Cork is, again, a major hub. Yeah. Right. It's it's a major transportation hub. It's a major commerce hub. It's loosely like kind of the most one of the most cosmopolitan educated. You know, you, you have sort of this flourishing economy happening there within Ireland itself. And so to have these firing squads and sort of this mass execution take place is 
just another really clear reminder of, of you know, and a, and a message from British rule about what they will do. You know, that they will basically, they will, they're basically willing to gut an entire, you know, gut, gut workers, gut labor, and make a very public example out of, out of rebellion, which is, you know, which is effective. But, you know, as a, as a result of this rebellion, um, England and Ireland enacted the Joint British and Irish Act of Union in 1801, two years later. So this act officially made Ireland a part of the United Kingdom and abolished the 500-year-old Irish Independent Parliament in Dublin. So Ireland was completely at this point under the jurisdiction of British Imperial Parliament at Westminster, England. So it took any kind of autonomy or ability that they had to, to self-govern out of Dublin, took it away from the people and moved it entirely under English rule. Using in a large part these rebellions and the fact that these people couldn't, um, you know, they were too savage or too, they, they weren't, they weren't smart enough or cultured enough to be able to, to control themselves. It's important to mention here too, right? When we're talking about the people that the English think are not smart enough or not good enough to rule themselves, etc. Mm -hmm. These are the Gaelic people. These are people in Ireland who are culturally Irish. These are not culturally English people, the landlords, the landowners living in you know, Dublin and Cork and whatever. Yeah, these are the these are the, the Irish people themselves. Yes. And so this creation of the Acts of Union, it really creates a super complicated form of government. So if you thought the American government was stupid, which like I think it's stupid, the English government is like the less sensible. Certainly can be so. Yeah. <laughs> the, the English government system is it just it's like the ridiculous pre-world that it all came from you know so the english has a system it's a parliament but it also is like kind of you know they don't want to get rid of the queen so yeah. it's sort of a weird merger of monarchy and democracy but not really a democracy all that much so in the uk government you have parliament and the parliament contains the house of lords and the house of commons the House of Lords is exactly what it sounds like. It's super rich landowners and people who are given appointments for life by the monarchy. And thankfully, a system like that has never, ever resulted in corruption. <laughs> it's perfect. It's great. You know, it's the best sort of system for government of all time. Uh, and besides capping on capitalism, you can also expect a healthy dose of snark. Yes, absolutely. In each of our, in each and every episode. Lovingly crafted snark. Fuck the House of Lords, dude. It's insane that this still exists. Uh, the House of it, Lords, it the is, people, yeah. the people from the House of Lords come from the English peerage system. And the peerage system is literally the system where people are given titles like Duke, Marquis, Duchess, etc. by the English royal family. So you have in this system of the House of Lords, you have bishops of the Church of England. These are known as Lords Spiritual. And then you have just regular rich folk known as Lords Temporal. And again, like you can inherit these titles. So imagine a system whereby, let's say, let, let's just say, for example, a super rich family in the United States just kind of gets to keep pumping out government people, right? Like, I don't know. Let's mm -hmm. say like mm -hmm. maybe a, a Clinton or a Cheney or a Bush. Like imagine there were these family dynasties 
that just through money and power got to keep. Oh, wait a second. It is our goddamn system of government, Marie. Oh, anyway, whatever. So um, this creates the system where you have these folks who are, again, very, very rich, very, very conservative generally. Right. You can imagine they don't want things to change a whole lot. And their job really well, is to kind it's of working really well for them. It's going Let's great. It's going great. Their job really is to decide if the stuff that the people want really makes a lot of sense or not. And so the people get a voice in the House of Commons. The House of Commons is an elected body made up of the people that we all elect, which generally means fucking morons. So in total, 70% of Irish representatives of either type between 1832 and 1859, so the years pre to the famine, are the large landowners or the sons of landowners. And so, again, this further exacerbates the famine because part of the reason the famine is so bad is the landlord system and all the people making the laws are like the landlord system isn't that bad. This is going great for us. Come on. Yeah. And your House of Commons, right, is like you were saying, even though it should be representative of all the people, it's mostly representative of uh, non title bearing landowners rich people so exactly. still wealthy still wealthy but just not appointed wealth exactly by the, by the queen because yep. again at this time if you are actively starving or actively trying to farm to make ends meet who has the time to run for political office or the desire to run for political yeah. office besides the yeah. idle rich so in the house of lords in total then there are 28 irish peers 168 from england and 16 from Scotland. So Ireland has more representation than Scotland, but a lot, lot less than England. Mm-hmm. And then the House of Commons will add 100 members from Ireland and, and 558 from the Parliament of Great Britain, which includes England and Scotland again, in, a, in approximately the same proportion as in that House of Lords. And so th- that body of people makes up the legislative and judicial branches of UK government. So they are... They are voting on laws and passing laws, but they are also actually the main judicial branch. There isn't like there is a court system, but the there isn't like a Supreme Court at this time in the UK. If you're an American, you expect there to be like a a separate judicial branch. There really isn't at this time in the UK. Yeah. At the top of Parliament is the ruling party. And the ruling party is the party that gets the most votes. And at the top of that is the prime minister. They're the kind of captain of the ship. They guide all executive function of the government of the United Kingdom. And they also sort of help lead the legislative agenda. So it's not like in the U.S. again, where the president can do things like executive actions and maybe work with their their government uh, body, Mm -hmm. like their Mm -hmm. party to kind of vote on laws Mm -hmm. in the U.K. They the the prime minister can can suggest laws, can suggest more than things. Yeah, they can they can pass laws. They can do all these kinds of things. Look at Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. And so the parliament then um, and the prime minister will also appoint a cabinet and the cabinet are the people that are actually doing those executive functions. So they're like running the treasury, running the civil service. You know, they're they're actually the ones in charge of different branches of executive power in the government itself and executive power. What I mean by that is they are. They're they're enforcing laws. They're running the military, they are running the treasury, like all the stuff that makes government work that isn't passing laws, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it's weird, right? Because at the time, 
It's not like the prime minister is operating on borrowed power from the king or queen. Yes. Technically, yes. all the power still yes. rules in the king, in the monarch who has what's called the royal prerogatives. Um, yes. Which is awesome. Yeah, they're just kind the of like most awesome term ever is the royal prerogative. Yeah. Me, right? <laughs> so the king or queen is just kind of like, I don't really want to deal with that stuff anymore. I'd rather just be in pictures and I'm like on mugs and stuff. So you guys deal with it. You know, we don't want to have to worry about any of it. We are not pleased. <laughs> yeah. The queen gets to drink tea and have little sandwiches and you idiots in the parliament can worry about all that other stuff. Yeah, but they still also, but they're still in control, right? Oh, and absolutely. So yeah. The the prime minister still has to meet and speak with and represent the agenda of the monarchy at this time, especially at this time. Like, I think now it's, you know. It's only since World War II ended that the role of the king, the role of the monarchy has become not actually one of power. It's, yeah, I think still a lot of societal power sure, and sure. influence, but I don't think... It's it's not like political as much, but here it's like, yeah, he, they would still have the prime minister would still have to do the bidding and make sure that they are enforcing the the mindset and, the yeah. you know, again, the prerogative of of royalty. And again, like it, their prerogative wasn't necessarily too in touch with the quote unquote little people. No. So, yeah, I mean, imagine. Right. So this is yeah. still we're still talking like the 1800s at this point. Yeah. 1776 is when. The United States rebels and kicks Britain right in the fucking pants. Yeah. And, um, you know, Tells at that time, get out of the backyard. Yeah. 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 And but we, at that time, we're rebelling. And when we're rebelling, we're directly saying the king is a tyrant. Right. So the king still has real power here. Like The monarchy still does have real power. Yeah. But it's kind of a weird like. It's a weird. You know, don't rebel, please. We'll give you some powers, but also still like we're in charge. So, you know, don't be too, you know, it's. It's weird, right? And yeah, like Marie's saying, at this time, the, the monarchy is shifting from the kind of power that, say, the president, but even it's, it's more power than the president has in the United States, to yeah. like the power of, say, Oprah has in the United States today. You know, it's kind of a, like a Beyonce level of power. Um, well, yeah, in Ireland, or not, sorry, in France and in England, it was, their position was governed, was, was, ordained by god yeah right i mean they are they are they are a king and a queen because god ruled them as such and up to a certain point that was enforced by the the church yeah that was they were in lockstep and i i think that it's still you're still seeing that with you know coming into the 1800s and coming into the sort of like they they recognize like you were saying they have to co-opt something with ireland to give them some type of representation mm -hmm. but not any type of control or uh, autonomy so yeah so what what marie what marie is hinting at here and really it's a great point so not only is it not only are is the monarchy and the kind of the british government let's say in general not only are they they're 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 kind of saying like okay look you can you can yeah you can have your own government still but we are they're literally physically taking all of the important people in Ireland, right, for better or for worse. These peers, the people in the House of Lords and the people voted in the House of Commons are important members of the Irish society. But now not only are they kind of culturally separate from the people, the real Irish people who are working the land that they're that they're over, 
They're also now geographically separate because all of these people have to be in the House of Commons or the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. So they have to go from Ireland to Britain to govern. Yep. So they are geographically now separate. They're temporally separate because it takes a long time at this point to go back and forth between the islands. And they are culturally separate. So it's it's creating, again, the system where these landlords, um, no wonder all of the rich of Ireland had never been back to Ireland. They're working in the United Kingdom government, which is in England. Yeah. And again, you're just you're co-opting you're co-opting any authority they have absolutely to make the remaining citizens of Ireland sort of dependent and and viewed as dependent and viewed as less as like children almost like they can't take care of themselves right they um you know the, we have to have this they're so you know they're viewed as so backwards because of the different culture because of because of the general attitude that they they can't be you know they can't be left up to their own devices and so this is sort of almost like this this parent like this again this absentee parent right because they're not physically like you were saying they're not there they're not understanding or they're being removed from understanding the problems that are facing the people mm-hmm. and yeah it's 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 pretty that's pretty messed up it's that's crazy messed yeah up. it's crazy and so not only and you can imagine right maybe the first generation of rich landlords or landowners, these peers from Ireland, maybe them coming over to England, they still retain some of their Irishness, but over multiple generations, these are now people who are culturally becoming English. And so like Marie, or yeah, British, I guess I should say. So like Marie said, it creates this system where they are, they begin to think of themselves as we are the refined Irish. We are the, right. So there's a, there's a sense here that the Irish need to be made English. They need to be brought to heel to right. become more civilized like yes. these rich Irish who live in the United Kingdom now or, or on, I should yes. say, the English uh, island proper. And so yeah. you have you give up all your language, right? You give up the different language like when you come over. And to your point, after second generation, probably didn't they weren't teaching no. the, uh, Irish language culture, heritage, history, folklore, all of it. Yeah. So within a generation, they go from being ruled by Irish to being ruled by English again. And so on the island itself, Ireland has its own local government body, which again is in charge of enacting and enforcing the laws that the parliament in England makes. This is known as the Irish Privy Council. It's consists of different roles over time, but the most important ones really for our story the Lord Lieutenant, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, and the Under Secretary for Ireland. So the Lord Lieutenant is also known as the Viceroy. They're the official voice of the king, so the voice of the monarchy to the Irish people and the governing bodies of Ireland. So basically, they're they're like the king's representative on the island. They're like the great, they're the source of all power. They're the source of all executive power on Ireland at the time. So initially, that role is a very, very important one. By the time of the famine, it's sort of shifted away from being an important role, like the voice of the monarchy, to really the person who gives out peerages. So they're the person who decides who's a duke and who's a duchess, primarily, which is still a super important role. And actually, it is the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland giving out peerages, giving out these titles to the House of Lords. 
as bribes, which makes Ireland vote for the acts of union in the first place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's again, this sort of very, very weird system. The chief secretary is initially kind of like the secretary of state running the day-to-day government operations, but eventually takes on the role that was really kind of the Lord, the Lord Lieutenant's role. So they become essentially like the president, the prime minister, the leader of Ireland, of the government on Ireland. And then the undersecretary really runs the civil service. So things like giving out famine relief to people and workforces and government jobs and military and stuff like that. Right. Which again, is just sort of messed up, right? Cause you're supposed to have sort of these equal bodies in you know, serving sort of as the local government, but you have the Lord Lieutenant who is really acting as just like you were saying, just doling out, you know, you're now a marquee, you are now yeah. a duke, <laughs> right? And and really, you know, becoming more isolated from the actual what you know, what does the infrastructure need? Right? Like there isn't there isn't sort of that two-way street. It's like, well, we're going to make you this because you're going to give us more of X, right? They weren't doing it because, Oh, this, this family represents these ideals that are uniquely Irish. You're giving them an English title because you're, again, you're now in country making, making the citizens of that country more British. And so it creates like, imagine as a, as a codier, one of these poor Irish farmers who doesn't speak English, you speak Gaelic. You are living in a mud hut on land owned by a person you've never met. Living in a country you've never been to. Making laws about your life, about what you are able to do every day. It is a... It is a system of government. I mean, Ireland was Ireland is closer to Britain, to England than maybe other colonial um, places, right? Other colonies that England had, but Ireland was treated as a colony, completely as a colony, and in some ways, I would argue almost as not worse, but almost viewed as like listen, we got our shit together. Why can't you? Right? Like, like the racism, right. the racism that, that the English had, let's say towards say India yes. was almost thinking like, well, these are a different type of people than us. And being white, being English, being of English stock gives us advantages that they don't have mentally, physically, whatever, like all the terrible racist shit they thought of at the time with the Irish. They're like, you are white. Get your shit together. Well, but at the same time, yeah, get your shit together. But, you know, you're, 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 you know, these drunken masses, right? But they were also the ones that were keeping them in alcohol. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Listen, I mean, this is the government's fault. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah. Yeah. No, no. This is, I know you're not pointing out, like, I I think that it's, it's, but that's the more insidious thing, right? Is you kind of have this whole bootstraps, again, this laissez faire bootstrap. Adam Smith mentality of you should be able to pull yourself out of this. Like, again, look at us, the English who are, you know, again, the most, one of the most advanced industrial countries in the world, 
right? We can do this. You should be able to, especially under our authority, you should be able to do this. So it's without acknowledging any of their role in why why they couldn't do it, right? Or why, what was the, what were the factors that they weren't taking into account and their culpability with it? Yeah. And so really, because again, they were, because Ireland is now tied to Britain and their proximity again to this highly, and what, what would be considered as one of the more industrial countries, Ireland concentrated more in the industries where it had some comparable competitive advantage, mm-hmm. which is raw goods, produced by the agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and they also, again, another advantage that they had over their British rivals was a lower cost of what was considered, again, in laissez-faire as unskilled labor. Farmers. Yes, yeah. farmers. Yeah, so agricultural labor, super cheap relative to the rest of the mm-hmm. British Isles. And so Ireland becomes sort of this premier industrial center for England. And especially at this time, like we're talking about the 1800s to 1845 here. England is basically going to war every month with someone new. You know, they're they're just like they're they're Europe. The table in Europe is getting flipped over every couple of weeks, you know. So from 1800 to 1845, the population of Ireland nearly doubles. And it's bolstered particularly by the wars from 1793 to 1815 between Napoleon and every single other person living in Europe. <laughs> when you can only really quickly, that's a good point about war. Like to go to war, you have to have a war chest. You have yes. to have you have to have the economic backing to be able to sustain a war. But war, as we have, you know, done in past episodes, is can be good for an economy, for a certain type of economy. Oh, right. Because you're going to yeah. need more of you're going to need more, more of certain goods, more munitions, more everything to feed the troops, all of this. So I think that there's also kind of this, you know, uh, uh, this need to meet Napoleon um, politically, but also it was really good for their economy. Oh, it was awesome for the Irish economy at the time. Ireland, like Marie said, you need a war chest to go to war. Ireland becomes that war chest for the UK. Yeah, they yeah. become the source of people or a major source of people, but more importantly, almost a major source of goods and services. So any of, say, like the the textile mills, the cotton, the um, the agriculture, the munitions, any of the stuff that England can't do because all of their people are going off to fight Napoleon, Ireland can now provide. Yep. And that particularly happens in Cork, right, Marie? Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah, so Cork, again, you know, is is one of the leading commercial ports um, and it possessed the largest uh, some of the largest slaughtering houses in Ireland. So this is where that they would take all their cattle or all their pigs and slaughtering season started in September and continued to the end of January, which is a long time to be killing cows. <laughs> killing <laughs> so, cows. Unless you really hate cows. Oof. Or I guess you uh, really it, like meat. I love meat. Yeah. I can't listen. I, I, I love, love meat, meat too, Delicious. but man, that's that's a little staggering. Um, yeah. So it was recorded that like 100,000 black cattle were killed and cured each year in Cork, largely to be exported to Britain. Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, and besides, besides that, I mean, uh, the pig production had always been important in Ireland as well. So the, a, a lot of small farmers... Their income was derived from pigs almost as great as as cattle. And so the export of salted pork was a huge industry. 
as well as Ireland, were, they were shipping 20,000 live pigs a week to England during this time. That I mean, and listen, if like a lot of people crap on English cuisine, I think English food is actually pretty delicious. But one of the most heinous things ever invented is the pork pie. Marie, have you ever eaten a pork pie? Have, have, I, have you seen a pork pie? No, I, blood pudding is the thing that I'm sort oh. of like, yeah, yeah you blood know. Put, listen, mm, yeah. generally, I'd say you put bread around meat and you fry it. I'm all about that. I'll eat that <laughs> every day of the week. You know what I mean? <laughs> you bake it. Mm-mm, delicious. Love it. The pork pie, the meat to pie ratio, it's way off. There's like eight times the amount of meat as there is to pie. So you're just eating a block of like jellied ham. It's crazy. Crazy. That's you make it sound so delightful. It's crazy. During this time, they were getting it. They were getting all of this from Ireland. I mean, you just see sort of like the sheer volume that they're exporting, I think, is the thing that, you know, when I was when I was reading into this, that really struck me and kind of blew me away was just like, you know, that they're. Like you're saying that it's this, you know, extractive economy. But when you start getting into the numbers of what that meant, yeah, it's, nuts. it's 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 horrifying. And then besides so besides, you know, uh, livestock, you know, other important industries were textiles, glassmaking, shipbuilding and gunpowder manufacture. Mm, important for Napoleon, gunpowder manufacture. You got to fight Napoleon. Gunpowder, man. Well, yeah. that's the thing. Right. And so you have like they're importing munitions. So mm. uh, in 1805. The Balancholic Royal Gunpowder Mills. So again, eight kilometers east of Cork were the most important military industrial complex in Ireland and Britain. So they employed several hundred people. They provided all of the gunpowder from several major British defenses across Europe. Yeah. And not just the gunpowder itself, but all the stuff that goes with it too, right? Like tanneries, salt, lime, chemical works. All of that is happening in Ireland and it's happening in the ports, of course, but in yeah. particular, it's happening in Cork. And so and it's amazing that they're producing, they're producing gunpowder, right? So the Irish people are producing the one thing that could and exporting the one thing that they really do need for rebellion. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, right? exactly, so they're, yeah. they're hugely proficient at it and they're not getting to use it themselves. Yeah. And the British are like, no problems here. This should go totally good. We're teaching them how to make explosions. No problem at all. And so with that, that's what we're going to pick up after the break. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Balancholic. Balancholic. Listen, we're not native speakers. We're just going to say it outright, okay? Not easy. Not easy, these pronunciations sometimes. So, all, so things are going great for Ireland while Napoleon is messing stuff up for everybody else. But after the Battle of Waterloo, so Napoleon, you know, getting getting got the economic (laughs) boon for ireland completely collapses that manufacturing workforce shrinks up to 43 percent further collapse of the textile shipbuilding glassmaking other industries eventually will mean that over 70 percent of the irish population are subsistence farmers 
So what does that mean? That means that they are those Codier class of people are just above Codier class. So they are working land owned by somebody else, essentially for the wage of whatever they could make over that required by the landlord. So they're growing potatoes or wheat or whatever. They're allowed to keep over whatever the landlord doesn't need to sell at market in England. Yeah. And what's really quick, what's really messed up about this is you're taking, um, you're taking a skilled labor, right? Textile, shipbuilding, glassmaking. So sort of, again, not unskilled labor. They have to resort back to unskilled, right? So there's no, there's no furthering of a trade like like shipbuilding, glassmaking, textiles, all these things yes. are really important for economies, for culture, you know, for, for building, you know, for, for building cities, they, they're losing the ability to train, to learn, to pass down that trade um, all because of this collapse as well. So Absolutely. their entire infrastructure kind of crumbles with it and goes back to subsistence farming. And so besides just kind of the effects on infrastructure and culture and everything else that Marie's talking about, it also has a tremendous effect on the people themselves. So the poor of Ireland are in significantly worse shape than those in England or the Americas or other colonial holdings of the United Kingdom. Again, they're not able to create economic growth of their own because the economy is based on indentured servitude. So there is no, um, passing down a familial wealth because there is no wealth being generated. There's no land being gained, nothing like that. And so you have at the time now, right after the collapse, the English government and the English people are kind of like scratching their heads. Like, well, what, what, ha- what went so wrong in this part of the UK that was so productive for us? Mm-hmm. What happened? Like, what the hell is going on there? And so you have people like Arthur Young um, who's an agriculturalist and and something of kind of a historian, I would say, begin working on on books. So in 1776, he goes to Ireland and he begins a book that he calls The Tour of Ireland. It's really the first look at the island by English agriculturalists and historians and kind of sociologists. The government will also pay to have kind of um, reports of Ireland and the Irish people done. And um, Arthur Young his work is interesting. So he's done two other works before this. He did a six weeks tour through the Southern counties of England and Wales, and he's done a six month tour through the North of England. And so some of the stuff that he reports though, it's quite fascinating. So this is him quoted here during his travels through Ireland. So he says, quote, the state of the poor and the whole County of Kerry represented an exceedingly miserable and owing to the conduct of men of property who are apt to lay the blame on what they call land pirates or men who offer the highest rent and who in order to pay this rent must and do relet all the cabin lands at an extravagant rise, which is assigning over all the cabins to be devoured by one farmer. The cotters on a farm cannot go from one to another in order to find a good master as in England for all the country is in the same system and no redress to be found. Such being the case, the farmers are enabled to charge the price of labor as low as they please and rate the land as high as they like. This is an evil which oppresses them cruelly and certainly has its origin in its landlords when they set their farms, setting all the cabins with them instead of keeping them tenants to themselves. The oppression is 
the farmer valuing the labor of the poor at four pence or five pence a day and paying that in land rated much above its value. Owing to this, the poor are depressed. They live upon potatoes and sour milk, and the poorest of them only salt and water to them, with now and then a herring. Their milk is bought, for very few keep cows, scarce any pigs, but a few poultry. Their circumstances are incomparably worse than they were 20 years ago, for, all, for they all had cows, but then they wore no linen. All now have a little flax. To these evils have been owing immigrations, which have been considerable, end quote. This is before the famine. This is before the famine. People are going to Ireland and being like, Jesus fucking Christ, this is bad. This is pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. Not great. And they're pointing out what the problem is. Right. So it's not like the problem wasn't identifiable or identified at the time. No. So So why didn't anybody? But my question would be, well, why didn't you know, why didn't anybody listen to Arthur? Because his book was censored. What? His book was censored. All of the commentary on like the social, all the commentary on the social effects of, you know, how bad things were and everything else were essentially censored. Right. And again, you have this, the, the English look at the Irish, like, like the black sheep of the family. They look at them as like bad brothers, right? They're like, look, Scotland got its shit together. Wales got its shit together. We're doing great. You know, Ireland is the only part of the United Kingdom that seems to always fall into these kinds of problems. And so the English start to believe that this is because the Irish are bad people, right? Mm-hmm. Poverty is linked to bad moral character. Yep. And so they think the Irish, they must be drunkards, backwards people who need the firm hand of their <laughs> English mommies and daddies to beat the good into them, essentially. And so this is what they're thinking before the famine happens, right? They're talking about how can we get the Irish off of the government teat? How can we stop them from being um, so so needy, so greedy, so drunken and stupid that they can't take care of themselves? It's fucking crazy. It is crazy. And they did a very good job at it. Yes. I mean, it took a very long time. It took a long time. It took a lot of co-opting, right? It took, it it took uh, an incredible amount of kind of this evil fortitude to take everything out of that country, right? Everything they possibly could at at a huge rate. And then when, you know, when shit goes south and there's no more, there's no more war to turn around and to blame the people for this. Right. It should be it that kind of that kind of history should be something we can learn from. You'd think, <laughs> right. You should be able to see, huh? I think we might be getting played. Right. Like, cause that's what that is. That's the classic. It's, 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 you see it time and time again, like again, America, uh, American colonists, uh, and did it with the indigenous people here. Right. So it's not like, you know, there's a certain playbook and that's what I just, it just, is amazing when you see it and you read it and then you kind of you're like yeah but we're better off now we would never do that now no we do it all the time yes so and again you might be you might be wondering yourself too like listening to this well wait a second you said that 50 years before this they were they were riding high their industry was doing great what happened to all that money well here's the thing right the people running 
the shipbuilding industries, the glass makers, the people who run the mills and the gunpowder manufacturing and all that stuff. All of those people live in England because they are large landowners. Most of the time they're peers um, or they are uh, parts of uh, the government. Right. So they are all Mm -hmm. living most Mm -hmm. of the time in England. Yeah, they're the so, ones making the deal with the government. So all of that, Lords, all of that, Minister. all of that yeah. money, right, that is being generated by this. What's happening is, OK, the gunpowder and whatever is being manufactured in Ireland. It is being shipped over to the English, right? It's being shipped over to England. In England, an Irish national, let's say, sells all the gunpowder to a merchant or whatever, mm-hmm. gets all that money and then sends a pittance of it back to Ireland to pay the workers and whatever. Right. But the vast majority of that wealth that they made as capital stays in England. Yes. And yes. so again, none of that. And, and again, why would you improve the conditions if, if stuff's still going good? Right. You don't, you don't need to make a manor house in, in Ireland or these nice roads or nice town centers or pubs or whatever. None of that economic activity that comes around there being people with money to spend none of that is happening in ireland it's all happening on the mainland yes and so all of this stuff now comes together to really create a powder keg of horrible conditions right it's a government run by absentee landlords who've been pulling resources out of ireland to generate prosperity in england for decades at this point It creates a system where the only job left to do in Ireland when those extractive manufacturing jobs go away, the only job left to do is agriculture. And for most people, the only crop that's productive enough to not only pay their rent, but also feed their families is the potato. Right. The potato is like a little nutrient bomb. It's full of good stuff. It's easy to do. You get a lot out of it. It's very productive. So even if you're mm-hmm. even if you're growing, let's say, pig or cattle or something else, wheat or whatever to ship off to sell, the thing that is giving you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of feeding your family, it's the potato. It's what you're living off of. Yeah. And one thing to remember about the potato, too, here, right, because we actually do it today in the United States prisons, too. Um, carbs make you look fat, even if you're not healthy. Right. Carbs will fatten you up even if you're dying of scurvy. Right. So the English who go over Mm, are the English who are going over are looking at Irish peasants and saying, well, wait, they look awesome. They look way healthier than the people in England. Right. They're not as skinny. They're muscly. They're taller. They're looking like way healthier. But -hmm. they're not. They're just fat off of carbs. Well, again, it's it's if you're only having one or if the majority of your nutrients are coming from one source. Yeah, it's and not good. the the you're not getting again healthcare. So we can talk about healthcare at this time is not relatively non-existent, right? I mean, the English aren't aren't helping them with it, with anything like that, and they're also making sure of it. You know, alcohol that they have access to alcohol. So it's just there's no balance. There's no there's no you know there's a to your point, like there's the illusion of health with, with being able to be fed off of potato, but it's just, it is, it's, it's literally setting up uh, an entire group of people to be really easily knocked out by something that's a pandemic. Yeah. It's crazy. Or an epidemic. Yeah. It's just, it's the perfect conditions for stuff to get bad. And it finally does get bad with the potato blight. Now the blight itself 
is caused by a microorganism called um, Phytophthora infestans. It is an oomycyte or water mold. It also can affect tomatoes. But again, potato is the main agricultural source here for people living in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And it's known as the late blight because it occurs later in the potato's life cycle. So other blights happen earlier, right? So like you plant something and it starts to grow leaves um, to, to power itself and then the leaves will fall off or die or whatever. And you're like, oh, God, this can happen. The, the, the umicite here can affect potatoes that have already been harvested. That's so insane. So it the way that it kind of does this. So first off, these microorganisms are sort of similar to like an algae or a fungi. And we're going to have somebody, I hope, you know, if, if, if you are a microorganism specialist here listening to the show, reach out. We'd love to pick your brains here a little bit. But essentially, the way that this thing works is you have wet and cool, humid, though, conditions. The microorganisms really can thrive. And so it creates these, these structures called hypha. These, that's that fuzzy, whitish stuff that we think about with, like, mold on food. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Once the hypha has grown enough, then the microorganism will go through what's called sporulation. So the growth of that body on it that produces spores. And in the right conditions, so again, wet and a little bit warmer, the spores will then germinate. So they're spreading now. And those mm-hmm. new spores will begin the hyphal growth stage on other plants. The spores themselves attach to the leaves and the tubers of the potato. And so what it actually does then is as it grows, it's eating essentially the potato itself. Oh, my God. And it's because of the way that it spreads, because of the fact that it takes kind of wet and cool conditions for the spores to survive, but then they really germinate under a little bit warmer conditions. Ireland is like the perfect place for this to happen. It's always wet. Yeah. It's always yeah. humid. Yeah. And it makes it really hard to control yeah. because it can, it can, first off, it can move everywhere, right? It can go through air. It can go through water. Yeah. It can, yeah. it can yeah. get in whatever run off water. And, yeah. And it's That's really, terrible. really hard to notice on it. Right. Because again, it doesn't just affect like plants. It can affect potatoes that are in the ground or that have been stored. And so suddenly like, these potatoes might have a little bit of whitish mold on their leaves, right? They, they grow on the underside mm-hmm. of the leaves. Mm-hmm. And within five days, sporulation has occurred. And so people are waking up to fields of their potatoes that look healthy, mm-hmm. that overnight become a black, stinking mush. And they have no explanation. No. Because, no. because it happens so fast. Five days. That's that's amazing to me, so the effect of that, how quickly that can occur and how quickly it can occur to like what you were saying, like the, the plants that are stored, right? Yes. So they're stored in barrels, bags, whatever. All of them go to mush. The ones underground, but they haven't even harvested yet. Go to mush. Yep. Go to mush. And I mean, in that you're not able to see it on the actual plant itself or it's harder to detect on the actual plant itself. It's really, it's really insidious. Yeah. So the first sign of the blight appears in Europe in August of 1845. 
or rather a little bit earlier in 1845, but it first gets to the UK in England, Southern England in 1845, August. By September, it's spread to Ireland. Initially, the government is pretty optimistic. They think that it's mm-hmm. not going to get into a full-fledged, uh, it's not going to get into a full blight um, because they think, well, it's it's due to the bad weather that they've been having, which they, they had been having bad weather at the time. But again, because of the way that the potatoes are harvested and then stored, and because of the fact that this oocyte can exist on seemingly healthy potatoes until the temperature just gets to the right conditions and then starts consuming them and killing them, it's not clear just how bad the crop of 1845 is going to be affected until like late October, early November. Mm. So by the time all of the work has been done yep. and it's too late yep. to do anything about it, it's not clear how badly things are going to get. And can we just say that this is the one export that England did send to Ireland? Yeah, this is exactly it. Yeah. Was the blight. Yeah. The only it thing start in, it didn't start in Ireland. No, starts in England. Starts in England. Um, at least in the UK, it, it comes from England. And so starts in England. we have really interesting uh, quotes from people at the beginning of the famine about just, again, like how quickly it happens, right? That, you know, one day you are going through farms that are green and lush and look great. And you wake up to the smell of rotting potato. And it's like the whole countryside has gone bad. And so this is a quote from James Pendergast of Milltown County, Cary. Um, He's writing to his children in Boston um, in October. He says, quote, the beginning of the harvest was very promising. The crops had a very rich appearance, and it was generally expected that the season would be very plentiful. But within the last few days, the greatest alarm prevails throughout the kingdom. A disease has seized the potato crop, the standing food of the country. The potatoes, which were good and healthy a few days since, are now rotten in the ground. Even some which were stored in pits seem to be affected with the same blight. The newspapers teem with alarming accounts of the same disease throughout the kingdom. It is dreaded that nothing less than a famine must prevail. And that's what we're going to pick up next episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. 
Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.